morning, everybody. All right, get your Bibles out. We got a lot to cover this morning. <clears throat> Starting in Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. There's no way I'll finish this study today, even though I, I would like to, but it'll just uh, probably linger on for a couple weeks here. There's a lot to study on the. Uh, Am I on, brother? Can you hear me? Okay, a little better. All right. Yeah, there's a lot to study regarding the uh, the altar uh, of sac the brass altar, as as it would be called in scripture. There are several names for it, but the brazen altar, the brass altar. But uh, so what I want to do before we get started this morning, I just want to give you a visual um, of the tabernacle. Let's see if we can make sure I've got this on. Give me one sec, please. All right, here we go. So this is just a 3D uh, visual to give, kind of give you a glimpse into what we'll be studying in the next uh, 8, 12 weeks. Obviously, that's outside the tabernacle. And this is the gate we talked about last week, which represented Jesus Christ. There's the altar, the brass altar. This is where they would do the work of, of the, sacrifice, the sacrifices, putting it into the altar. Which, by the way, they don't show the altar that has fire, because remember, the fire never went out. Then you have the brass laver. Again, key is the material on some of these, these pieces of furniture. That is the holy place. Five pillars. You'll see the coverings that God provided that he detailed out in great detail, actually. And then you'll uh, we'll enter into the holy place here, which is where the priest would... They would spend a lot of their time in, inside here doing the work of God, but they never would go beyond the, the, uh, the curtain there. That was once a year for the high priest, for those of you who remember that. There's your table of showbread, and you've got, you got the golden incense, golden altar it was called. And then you've got the, the curtains entering into the holy place, the most holy place, which the Ark of the Covenant and of course, you had what was contained in the ark, and then the mercy seat of God in between the two cherubim, cherubs. So that gives you a little bit of a, a visual on what we're going to be studying. Again, like I've said, there's just nothing appealing about it. There was just nothing. I mean, the holy place, obviously, but that was really hid from, 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 from the, the Israelites. But the outer tabernacle, once again, just didn't have much to it, and I think God is teaching us there that uh, there's that God's ways are not our ways, and He's not always about the grandiose. He's not always about what's what's the biggest and the best. He sometimes has some of the best treasures hidden in the small things and the details. So, what I want to talk about briefly, this has been on my mind a lot uh, as we talk about you know the pieces of furniture, and it's there's a lot of details and a lot of truths to it. But one of the things, sometimes we overlook some of the, the more obvious details, and this one is about the priests. The Levite priests had the responsibility of, of what would be referred to as the daily sacrifices and the, and the holy place and the ministering of that and the service of the tabernacle. But did you ever consider the conditions that they had to minister in? And they're out in the middle of the wilderness. First of all, there's no air conditioning back then. There was, the floors were full of dust. There weren't ideal conditions at all. It was hot, it was bloody, it was dirty, uh, it was uncomfortable. They had to be filthy. That's why they had the, the laver. 
to wash themselves. And then they'd go back to the, the bloody sacrifice. And then they had dust everywhere and dirt. And I'm sure they sweat the whole time. And it was uncomfortable. There was routine to it. That gets boring. What can we learn from this? We're all ministers of the sanctuary to a degree. We're all priests. We're all called into the priesthood. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter, in chapter 2, it says you are lively stones, living stones. Uh, remember, Jesus Christ is the rock, R-O-C-K, capital R. We just represent him, but we're living stones. And you're built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. So we all have the responsibility of ministering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Of course, he's doing that work through us to work out your own salvation. Paul's not talking about working on your salvation. He says work out your salvation because it's in you. And so we have this responsibility of ministry, much like the priest of the Old Testament. We just don't have those type of, that, that type of environment, but we have similar environments as we minister. There's uh, certainly when we're out there uh, ministering to, as priests, we're going to face uh, uncomfortable situations. Sometimes it's going to be boring. Sometimes you're going to suffer as a minister, uh, as a priest. But God calls us to that, and that's that sacrifice that we offer up to God, and that's pleasing to God. Paul said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in you. So we're going to suffer, and ministry's messy, by the way, but we're called to it. All of us, everyone's got a ministry. Just got to find what God wants for you to do. And in that ministry, you're going to suffer at times. You're not always going to have ideal conditions. But God says that's pleasing to him when we offer those sacrifices when it's not comfortable. There's a lot to learn here from just not just the instruments themselves. I love this verse. I believe uh, the Holy Spirit had this in mind when he wrote this. and wrote. We're all familiar with Romans 12, verse 1. It's beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. Those were dead sacrifices. This is a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I mean, uh, God is pleased when we make those sacrifices in ministry, even though it's uncomfortable, it's, it's routine, it's boring, it's hard. God is pleased when we make those sacrifices. He wants that sweet-smelling savor to come up. Ah, he said, I smell Jim today. Jim's sacrificing for me. Well, maybe. Not, not his tie, but everything else he's sacrificed. I tried to keep up with you, brother. So I couldn't find a tie that wild. I just couldn't. I looked everywhere. But anyways, God want, I, I think this is a, appropriate as the song says, you have longed for sweet peace and for faith to increase and have earnestly, fervently prayed, but you couldn't have rest or be perfectly blessed until all on the altar is laid. When you lay it on the altar and you give it to God, which you're called to do, even if it's not comfortable and it's messy, God says, that's a sweet smelling savor to him. That's what these sacrifices were to God. Even though that priest is having to 
get his hands messy and dirty and bloody and it was violent. But when he put that there, God said that is a sweet smelling savor to him. Because God always chose that type of sacrifice to please him. So, as we move forward into the altar itself, you know, getting a little glimpse of that these are just, you know, artist renderings. They're not necessarily as completely accurate as probably what the scriptures would have, but nevertheless, they give you a good idea. But the altar was a place of judgment and sacrifice. We're going to talk a lot about that. It was never meant to be pretty. It wasn't meant to be appealing. It wasn't even welcoming. It was actually revolting. It was bloody. It was violent. There was suffering. Imagine having that job every day from morning to night. Morning to night. It never ends. But yet God required that because we learned last week when we talked about that that there's no way to approach a holy God without addressing the sin issue. And so God is clearly making it clear to us that sin has to be dealt with and it's violent. God cannot overlook sin. He cannot put it aside and say, well, I'll just I'll move on to this and give you righteousness. No, I've got to get sin dealt with first, then I'll give you the righteousness. So again, the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, which eventually they missed the whole thing. When Christ shows up, they don't even they have no understanding of what the sacrificial system was meant to do, what it was pointing to. Even the disciples, Christ's closest disciples, didn't get it. They didn't understand the cross, and yet here their whole history spoke of what God demanded, and when He told them He has to go to the cross, they didn't get it. All they're looking for is a king. They wanted something grandiose. Now they were promised that, but they didn't understand the lamb first. And so God required the sacrifice. The altar always demands a sacrifice. If you don't have a sacrifice, then the altar has no purpose. So if we go to the altar, but we're not willing to sacrifice, then it doesn't do us any good. God demands a sacrifice in our service, in our, in our work, worship of Him. Even the sacrifice of praise. Have you ever had to praise God when things aren't going your way? God calls that a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews chapter 13. So in Exodus chapter 29, we won't read all this, but Exodus 29 verse 38 and 39, Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar, two lambs for the first year, day by day continually. In other words, it reflected something eternal. It was just like the fire never went out, depicted the wrath of God upon sin for all eternity. Here we have the lamb depicting the sacrifice for all eternity. Here in verse 39, the one lamb you're going to offer in the morning, and the other lamb you're going to offer in the evening. And then he talks about in verse 42 through 46, he, he says four times, I will meet with you. I will meet with you. I will dwell, and I will dwell. So he's saying, clearly the sacrifice will allow me to fellowship with you. So God demanded a sacrifice, but he chose a lamb. Why? Good question. But if you really study this out carefully, throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, it's always been the lamb. Now there were other sacrifices. There was the ram. Mary offered what? 
pigeons. Why? Because she was poor. So God had an offering for the poor. And we know Jesus was angry in the temple and he overturned the tables because they were selling the sacrifices and making money on it. Missing the whole point of the sacrificial system. But yet God's whole theme through Scripture was the Lamb of God. Always has been, always will be. So we read here from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to study this out. It's, it's exciting, at least for, for Bible believers. In Revelation 13, in verse 8, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So in the mind of God, in eternity, it's always going to be about the Lamb. So everything from the time Genesis happens and the sacrifice system begins, it will always be a lamb. It may not mention the lamb, but it always was a lamb. In the mind of God, or physically, was a lamb. This is found as a summary statement in Revelation 13. But then we see here, this, this context in Revelation 5 um, is interesting because it's the New Testament saints joined with the Old Testament saints the angelic host of God, and this is after the rapture. This is probably the tribulations going on, or the beginning of the tribulation. And God's people are all together, and when it talks about who's worthy to open the seals, God doesn't say, and here's my son, Jesus Christ. He says, oh no, he depicts it as, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain. Once again, in the mind of God, it's always been about the lamb of God. So when he says, I want you to sacrifice a lamb in the morning, and I want you to sacrifice a lamb in the evening, he's picturing what his son would become, the lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. So let's go back into Genesis and study this out, because it's always been about the lamb. In Genesis chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me, there's some interesting we're going to dig a little deep into this. I'm, I could stay on the surface, but I just can't. I just, I try. But we've got to go deep. We've got to look at some context here. And most of us are familiar with Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 and Adam and Eve and when they sinned and, and, and you know. And, but what we, what we often miss is some of the more important details of what is written and how it's written in Scripture. In Genesis 3, in the context of they fell into sin because they disobeyed God, in verse 7, the eyes of them, in chapter 3, were both open. And they knew that they were naked, and notice, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. What's wrong with this picture? For first of all, they're doing the work of covering their sin. They knew they had sin, and they found a way to cover it. They made themselves aprons. They covered themselves. And on, in addition to all this, it was a bloodless sacrifice. There was no blood involved. So we turn into later into chapter 3, and we find something that God intervenes into the life of Adam and Eve as they witness for the first time that history has recorded this, where they see death and they see a sacrifice of a lamb. And that this is what we read about it in Genesis 3, in verse 21. And unto Adam 
also to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. See the difference between they made themselves aprons, they clothed themselves, they birthed the world's first religion based on works, without the blood. God intervenes, they witness death, they realize something dramatic has happened because they've never seen, there was no death, there was no shedding of blood, and yet God took an animal we know to be the lamb, he, shed, he killed that lamb in front of them as they witnessed death and the struggle, and then he took those bloody clothes and he clothed them. God did the work. That's the difference. And that was acceptable to God. Now, as good parents, as Adam and Eve, uh, I'm sure, understood that what, what just happened, they have children, they pass that down, that truth to their children. They probably told the story. Well, we did this, and God rejected it, and then God came out and he made us coats of skin through the Lamb of God. And then we find Cain and Abel. So Cain decides to take matters in his own hand. He rejects the message. Um, certainly, they had to have heard the message. They, they rejects the message, and he goes out and gets fruit of the land. He thinks that's acceptable to God. Here's the problem. It's like their first religion. It was without the blood. It wasn't an animal sacrifice. But, but Abel, on the other hand, obeyed. You know, Jesus refers to Abel as righteous Abel. And I always said, okay, righteous Abel, he says that about Lot, or uh, he says that about Noah. Righteous Abel, for you to be righteous, the Bible says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So it's clear to me that Abel believed God, believed the message from God, that it took a blood sacrifice, the lamb, and because of that, he was given righteousness. And so we see that Abel, as we read here, he brought the firstlings of the flock and the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect, and Abel, and to his offering. In other words, God accepted, rejected Cain's, and accepted his because it, required, it was the Lamb of God that God required. So, let's move forward. This is consistent in Scripture. That was Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 22. Let's turn there. Genesis chapter 22. Now, we won't go too deep into this, but I, there's some things I want to highlight as we study this out. So, most folks are familiar with uh, Abraham getting ready to offer up his son Isaac. But there's a lot you have to think about here in what God is asking Abraham to do. Remember, this was the promised son. He got this son when he was about 100 years old. So it was a miracle, but Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. God, God says, I'm going to give you a son. Can you imagine that at 90? I'm going to give you a son. And, you know, that's just beyond belief. It's not, it's not reasonable. It's not logical. It can't happen unless God says it can happen. But Abraham said, he said, you see the stars? I'm gonna, go ahead. You're, that's going to be your seed. It's going to come out of your loin. And the Bible said, you know, I don't know what that, all the details of that communication were, but I'm sure, Abraham, you really believe I'm going to give you a child at 90 years old? Abraham said, God, you said it. I'll believe it. And for that, God said, I'll give you my righteousness. Abraham believed God. So now he takes that very promise that he gave, and he says, I want you to kill it. Let's, be, let's just use the right line. I want you to kill your son. Now that just seems inhumane. I mean, this is where people leave God right here. How could a loving God 
ask his man of faith to kill his only begotten son. Now, there's a whole study in that, that God is saying, that son is more important than me in your heart, and you need to take it away. So that is the study of it. So God is removing something from Abraham that was a hindrance. But nevertheless, he asked him because it's going to picture the future. God's doing everything to picture something that, he, that he's going to do. And in this case, they get to tell him a story, as you know, and he says, we're going to go up and we're going to make an offering. But he doesn't say what offering. He's telling his servants. But now in uh, verse 4, the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. I find it interesting it's on the third day that he makes this comment. Remember we talked about the third day? What's the third day related to? Resurrection. The next statement in verse 5 is a resurrection statement. Because he says this, and I and the lad will go yonder. Now remember, he knows he's about to kill his son, but he goes, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. In other words, he believed God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. If he killed his son, he believed he was going to raise him. Maybe not immediately, but he knew he would. In fact, Hebrews now, because we can go forward, Hebrews, I think it's uh, 11, make sure, yeah, 11 verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up from the dead. Abraham said, I believe God's going to raise Isaac. That's why he was willing to do it, because he knew. But it was a picture, really, of God the Father killing his son, and he was right, rose from the dead. So we know that. But a lot of people miss that statement. And here they off, often they wonder, traveling, and, you know, Isaac, good question. I'd ask it too. Hey, I got the fire, I got the wood. Hey, where's the lamb? <laughs> but why did he ask for a lamb? Because he knew from Genesis 3 what God demanded and what God required was always a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. Hey, where's the lamb? Good question. Could you imagine the response of Abraham? You're the lamb. But what's stated in Scripture is prophetic. He says God will provide himself a lamb. And we know that's a prophetic statement about Jesus Christ. And God will provide himself a burnt offering or a lamb as a burnt offering. So clearly, here's what's interesting. Now, Abraham's 100 years old. Isaac's in his prime. Who do you think's going to win this wrestling match? That tells me that Isaac could have any time said, I'm not doing this. He could have put the wood down, the fire, and bailed, and there's no way a 100-year-old man's going to catch up to a, I don't know how old he would have been, 33? No way. At his prime. So that tells me Isaac had to submit to the Father's will. Not my will be done, but thine. That's what Jesus echoed in the garden before the cross. Not my will to incur the wrath. He said, let this cup pass. No. He said, you're going to experience the wrath of God, the separation for eternity, from eternity, for that sin. Not your sin, but the sin of the world. But he volunteered. He gave up his will to do the Father's will. Just like I believe Isaac had to do it as he laid on the altar and said, go ahead. 
Because he could have quit at any time. And we know the story is that God stopped that from happening. It never was meant to happen. It was a picture of what God was going to do in the future. So again, it's the lamb, it's the lamb, it's the lamb. Here we turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We're all familiar with this. A couple things we'll highlight here. So, as, we, as God begins to deliver, take his people out of Egypt, a type of the world, to end up placing them in the wilderness. They don't know that at this point. But God's about to rede uh, redeem his people. And he, he starts off by saying, take a lamb. Take a lamb. But in verse 5, it's interesting. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish. So it goes from a lamb to your lamb because it goes from something that's not personal to something that's personal. Your lamb shall be without blemish because it's personal. The lamb is personal. To all of us who are saved, the lamb of God is personal to us. To the world, it's a lamb. But to us, it's our lamb. So your lamb shall be without blemish. Whole other thing on, on without blemish. Obviously, God did not want a blemish because it represented something that was without sin. So the lamb was to be without blemish. And we know in Malachi, they were bringing their sacrifices to, to God, and the sacrifices had blemishes because people stopped caring about what God was thinking, and God was angry with his people for doing that. Because God wants it to represent something that is without sin. And the lamb was to do that. And then he says, kill it. Now, I, I can imagine what that'd be like for, you know, for the average person to watch a, a lamb be killed and then the suffering of that lamb while it's dying. No one likes to witness death. And there's a lot of hunters in here, and I get it, but a hunters even, they want to kill the animal immediately. They don't want the animal to suffer. A good hunter doesn't want an animal to suffer. They want the animal to die immediately. But in this case, when they slit that throat and the blood was, that animal would struggle and suffer. To witness that is painful. It's burned in their memories, but God required that because that's what He required for the sacrifice for sin. So you can imagine some little boy witnessing that for the first time as his dad says, all right, son, let her rip. And then watch that. As God wants to burn that in our memories of, of how much it cost sin, how much sin costs. And then we know in verse 7, God takes the blood, he puts it over the doorpost. You notice he never asked for it to be on the doorstep. Because God never wants anybody to trample the blood of Christ. So he always, it was over, and then we know the death angel was to come through, and then the Bible says that when I see the blood, and we know this, I will pass over, it's where the Jews get their Passover, I will pass over you. So the death angel did not execute judgment in the house where the blood of the lamb was, but Egypt didn't do that. They rejected it, and their firstborn died. So we see clearly that God was pointing to when he sees the blood. And I was talking to uh, Brother Eric last night. Him and I were talking about there was a, there was a doctrine going around in, back in the late 80s, early 90s, that the blood did not mean the blood. It meant nothing. The blood, the physical blood, meant nothing to God. It was the cross. 
That doctrine was prevalent and starting to permeate even fundamental churches. I'm not going to name names, but there were people out there that were falling for this and saying, when I see, we have forgiveness through his blood. Well, I'm pretty simple. That means his blood. I don't understand it. They went through the Red Sea. It's a picture of the blood. When we go up, we're going through. We've got the blood. It, 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 I don't understand it, but it's eternal. And it's spiritual. But to say it's not the blood would negate everything in Scripture. We're back to Genesis 3. They made themselves figs. They made themselves aprons. It's a bloodless sacrifice. It doesn't mean anything then. But God said blood has to be sacrificed. And the lamb was always. And we know all those years culminated in this. Behold, as John looked, and he didn't know, but he was given by the Holy Spirit. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. All those sacrifices, all that death, all that blood over all the thousands of years, and here walks in on earth the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Could you, I mean, could you imagine what John's thoughts were when he realized this is the Lamb, not a Lamb, this is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. All those sacrifices culminated on the cross where the blood of Christ was shed. So, the Lamb of God is critical in our study and, and we have a great appreciation while we don't often refer to Jesus Christ as the Lamb, we don't say, oh, dear Lamb of God, but we recognize that God pictured the Lamb to the true Lamb who would take away the sacrifice. Hebrews uh, chapter 10, I think, is one of the most pivotal, pivotal uh, chapters in all of Scripture. Because it talks about the sacrifice year after year that have to do it again and again and again because there was a remembrance of their sin. It didn't take care of the sin permanently. But Jesus Christ shows up and it says, this man offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And you know what it says next? And he sat down. You know what's important about that statement? And he sat down? The high priest went in once a year to the holy place to sprinkle the blood, and he got out. He never, he never sat down. You know why? Because the work was never finished. But Jesus Christ, the high priest, went in, took care of it once and for all, and he sat down. It's over. So when he cried on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. For all of us, our salvation is secure in the Lamb of God because he took away our sin. Now. Exodus chapter 27, we're going to change gears a little bit here, so you bear with me, but Exodus chapter 27, good, i got a few minutes, this is really um, interesting, I'm going to try to draw this out, Exodus chapter 27 and, and Exodus chapter 25, um, I'm, you're going to have to read these, so verses 10, chapter 25, verses 10 and 22 would be your Two, verse, two verses I'd have you look at when you have time. And then Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 and verses 5. So we go back to why would God give all these details about measurements in Scripture? Um, I'll make sure I'm in, in, in view here. Um, 
So I'm going to do my best. I'm not an artist by any means. But these measurements mean something. Now, I'm not going to try to be dogmatic and say I, I've got the answer here. But something certainly is lining up here why God made these measurements specific for the altar. First of all, um, let me draw out the altar. So that's a little bit too big. Hold on. I'm trying to be proportional. Well, I guess I, for, for, for viewing's sake, you'll understand. So you got the altar of God. This was five cubits. It's really seven and a half feet, but we'll just use God's language here as five cubits. And that would be from here to here. So that's five cubits. And it was five cubits this way. Now that's an interesting. Now I'm not much for Bible numerology. I don't understand it, but I do understand the basics of one, two, three, and why God uses sevens. Now there's a lot of debate about the number five. Most fundamental circles say five is the is the number of grace. I wouldn't argue that, but it's also the number of death. If you if you go to the law of first mention or the chapter, Genesis chapter five is the chapter of death. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. In Genesis, so five, there's a, there's a, a pattern in history where five is connected to death. Jesus had five wounds. He had the thorns, he had the hands, he had the feet, and he had the spear. Five. Pictures of grace, yes. Picture of death. Why God had a five by five is probably because the altar was a picture of death. But it was also from death came grace. So. Again, I'm not being dogmatic about that, but there's something about that. However, uh, the height, I told you, the height is not five. The height is three. So it's, it's five by five, but then it's three high. So it would be about that high. You saw pictures of it. And God said in chapter 27, verse 5, he says, I want you to put a grate called a net, also referred to as a grate, in the middle or in the midst of the of this. So that would be one and a half cubits. So that thing was one and a half cubits, and this is where they would lay the lamb for the sacrifice. So the lamb would lay there at one and a half cubits, because this was three high, but right in the middle is one and a half. Now we come over here to the Ark of the Covenant, which is behind we know was behind the curtain. The Ark of the Covenant was two and a half cubits by two and a half cubits, but it was, of all things, one and a half cubits tall. So the mercy seat of God, where God's presence dwelt right here, was one and a half cubits. There's no way in the world this could be a coincidence that the Lamb of God is one and a half cubits laid down to burn as a sacrifice and God's presence is one and a half cubits. What I learned through this, because the direction to God was east to west, as those Levites did the work, they moved in this direction and then once a year they go there. What I learned for that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You want to get to the mercy seat of God, you got to go through the Lamb of God. That's why I believe it's one and a half cubits, because God is a surveyor, the architect, wanted it exactly in line with His presence. 
Because the only way you're getting to the presence of God is through the Lamb of God. And it's through the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God. Again, I, I don't know if that's... But there's something about these measurements that none of us fully understand. But why God would do that indicates because these measurements are in almost every instrument except for the brass laver. But that tells me God had something in mind when He did this. Because He knows, only He knows what was needed there to get to him. So, with that, I think we probably should stop, which I knew I would never get past. I get halfway through, so. But, hey, praise the Lord for the Lamb of God who takes away our sin of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, dear God, for us being able to gather as your people, to be able to worship you, to lift you up as the Lamb of God. Thank you, Father, for your sacrifice, the blood-stained cross of Jesus Christ that has given us life and his resurrection, and how we praise you, dear God, and how we pray that today you're lifted up and our hearts are drawn closer to you as we ask you to bless in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239 947 one two eight five. Thank you and God bless.